Today we're reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. He, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can have a seat, unless you want to stand. That's weird, but fine. Uh, how you doing this morning? Good, good. So my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the uh, pastors of Redeemer Church, and uh, I just want to I want to clear up a rumor that's been going around this morning. And uh, contrary to popular belief, Paul and I are not twins. Uh, this wardrobe choice was a mistake. Uh, it was an accident. We didn't mean to do it. Uh, but he is not my brother. So, but. Uh, <laughs> I want to share with you guys uh, a little bit, uh, just some stuff I've been reading uh, over the last uh, like couple weeks or so. I've been reading this man uh, who is kind of known as a Christian philosopher. Well, he was known as a Christian philosopher. He passed away uh, a few years ago, but his name is Dr. Ronald Nash. Dr. Ronald Nash. And he, was, he always had this really insightful way of looking at the world. And he was incredibly insightful in noticing the patterns in which human beings would often live their lives. And one of the unavoidable truths in the human experience that Dr. Nash actually observed is that every human being, no matter what their cultural context is, no matter what their particular worldview was, all human beings have this innate sense to, or, or need might be the better word, to organize themselves under some sort of authority. They always want to be under some sort of authority. Now that may seem kind of wrong, especially here in the American context, where we are like, oh, well, no, we don't want any authority over us. But despite that, there is still that, that streak that runs all throughout hum humanity that, that, that kind of craves that. And so for some people, it's actually reason. It's reason. They believe that pure human rationality and reason can and will solve all of the world's problems. And so they dedicate themselves to it. They dedicate themselves strictly to reason. And this really came to fruition during the European Enlightenment several centuries ago. And it is still alive and well even today especially in atheistic circles or even humanistic circles. It's, it's alive and well. They, they kind of organize themselves under human reason. Now, for others, it is the government. And I feel like you see that a lot right now, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. People believe that, that either a specific political party or a political theory or a political figure is going to usher in the world as it should be, right? 
And so they organize themselves under politics. Now, more and more in our culture today, we're actually finding out that people are starting to organize, their, uh, the, organize themselves under the authority of their own lived experience, right? They use themselves in their own life experiences to guide them. Now, this list could actually go on and on and on. There are an endless number of things and people that individuals uh, seek to submit themselves to as their ultimate authority. But for Christians, but for the Christians in this room, we find our authority and we, we seek to organize our lives under what is called revelation. Meaning God's word and his will that is revealed to us in the Bible. We believe that what the Bible teaches is what is true and good and is what we should submit to because it is the inspired word of God. And this book tells us that our knee should bow to Jesus as king of all. Or, yeah, as Jesus as king of all. But while it's, it's really easy for me to say that, right? It's, it's really easy for me to say that, that all of you in this room right now should organize your lives and your beliefs under the authority of Jesus. I wouldn't really blame you for not simply just taking my word for it. In fact, there has been quite a bit of people throughout history who have believed things simply because someone told them that they should. Their belief, or faith, you can call it, does not, does not really extend beyond the question of, well, well, who told you to believe that? And this holds true for atheists. It holds true for Hindus and Mormons. And it holds true for Christians. I come from the South. Everybody and their uncle is a Christian. And if you ask them why they're a Christian, it's, well, yeah, I, just, I grew up that way. There's not really any depth there. No real, no real reason as to why they believe in Christianity. And if you claim to believe in and organize your life under the authority of Jesus, Christian, then you should, you should strive, you should desire to be able to answer the question, why? Why? Why do you submit to the authority of Jesus over all other things? over other people and other false religions that are, that are vying daily for your allegiance? It's an important question. And over the next couple of weeks, Mark is actually going to help us answer that question by providing us with several different reasons why Jesus should have ultimate authority over our lives. And today we'll be looking at just two of them. We're going to be looking at the way that he expresses his authority in his teaching. And then the next is his authority that he has over demons. And we'll be looking at that a little bit closer, but first let's pray. Father, we just want to just thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to, to be here today in this place. Lord, there are so many Christians all over the world right now who do not get this privilege of praising your name, of singing songs, listening to your word being expounded upon in relative safety and comfort, God. So we just thank you so much for that. Let us not take that for granted this morning. And Lord, I pray that you prepare our minds 
and that you prepare our hearts for the things that you want to teach us. God, I pray that you just pierce us with your truth this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. If you will, take a look again at Mark 1, verses 21 and 22. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some back there if you want to snag one, or it'll be up here on the screen as well. But we're reading verses 21 through 22 of Mark 1. And it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so we're told by Mark that after Jesus had gathered the first of his disciples, he tells us that they ventured into the city of Capernaum. Now this city was, was kind of somewhat of a, a small, booming metropolis. It sat along the, uh, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which was very popular for its fishing industry. And it was home to a lot of Jews, a lot of Gentiles, and an entire Roman colony. So it was a very bustling city. It was kind of bursting at the seams, actually. And as most cities that are like Capernaum, that are big and have a lot of a big Jewish presence, the Capernaum also had within its walls a synagogue. Now, the synagogue was, was not the temple, right? It's not where the Jews went to to uh, do their sacrifices. There was only one temple, and it was in Jerusalem. But a synagogue was actually a gathering place. That's what, literally what synagogue means. It was a place for Jewish people to assemble together and hear the teaching of the scriptures by various teachers and traveling rabbis, which is technically what Jesus actually was. And so Mark tells us that, that Jesus entered into this synagogue on Sabbath and he began to teach. Now, there's nothing strange about this or nothing innocuous about this. But last week, Mark gave us the content of the preaching of Jesus. He gave us the content of the preaching of Jesus. And now what Mark is wanting to capture and convey to us is now specifically the character, the character of the teaching of Jesus. As you notice the response of those listening to Jesus preach is, is kind of odd. They were, they were astonished. The word used there can, can mean astonished or it can mean amazed, but the connotation, the, the flavor, if you will, of the word that is used for astonished is not really conveyed well in English. The flavor, the connotation is actually fear. Fear. When Jesus picked up the scroll in that synagogue, and when he began to teach, he did so in a way that they had never heard any other single rabbi teach like before. Their jaws hit the floor, and their, their breath caught in their chest, and all they could do was sit and listen with a mixed feeling of awe and fear, or even dread. And what is happening here? And why are the Jewish listeners in the synagogue having such a strange reaction to Jesus? Because all, he, all he's doing is teaching, right? That's not, that's not strange. What could have possibly made them be so fearful? He was just, was just teaching. 
Well, Mark says that the way that Jesus taught was one with authority. He taught as one with authority. Now, for a little bit of context, it's, it's helpful to know that the, that the scribes in Israel were experts in the Old Testament. And their interpretations of Scripture were seen by pretty much everybody else in Israel as, as somewhat binding. And the scribes also bore the responsibility of caring for the scrolls of Scripture. And in order to be a member of the ruling body of Jews known as the Sanhedrin, you had to be a scribe. So they were, they were a big deal. And so needless to say, they held very prominent seats in all of the synagogues in the area. And so if anyone had authority, if anybody had authority when teaching in the synagogue, it was, it was these guys, it was the scribes. However, they, they taught with a different kind of authority. It was a different kind of authority. What I mean is that when, when they taught, they always cited the opinions and the teachings of other scribes. They always appeal to the authority of others and not on their own authority. It is, it is a lot like preachers today, much, much like myself, really. I often point to Scripture, but I also point to other pastors and theologians, to different commentaries that have kind of helped inform me when I preach my sermon. So when you are getting my sermon today, it's not just, just my thoughts off the top of my head about the Bible. It is kind of a conglomeration of all of these different sources that have helped inform me what the scripture says. And that's, that's really how the scribes taught. They still had a certain kind of authority, but it was different than what is being talked about here in Mark about Jesus's authority. And so what was so astonishing? What was, what was so strange to the people in the synagogue who were listening to Jesus is that he did not appeal to any scribe. He didn't cite any Pharisee. He didn't bring in any quotes from any Sadducees. But he himself was the authority. Matthew Henry comments, Jesus taught as one that knew the mind of God and was commissioned to declare it. Now the Greek word exousia, it's kind of a fun one to say, exousia, translated authority in Mark 1.22, the word authority here. It's an extremely important word in this passage, and yet again, unfortunately, we as English readers, we kind of get the, the short end of the stick because, because we cannot fully see how important, how key this word is to understanding the awe and fear of the listeners and how important it is to understanding what this word authority truly means. And so let me, let me break it down just, just really quickly for you guys. You see, the word is made up of a root and a prefix. The root is ex, ex, which is just out of. It is where we get the word exit. That's where the word exit comes from. So the way that you get out of a room is through the exit. But it's prefix. It's the prefix that we really want to look at and kind of focus on. Because if the root is ex, that makes the prefix usia, right? That's pretty, pretty simple. Not, nothing too uh, complicated there. Now, the literal translation of this word, ustia, is the word being. Being. 
Now, for ancient Greek philosophers, this was a, a very important word because the word usia was used to represent ultimate reality. Ultimate reality, the true realm of being that transcended everything else. That, and that, that usia is what they were constantly seeking after. The ancient Greek philosophers were obsessed with finding the usia, finding the ultimate transcendent truth. Now, if you put the root, ex, together with its prefix, usia, making exousia, you get a very, very loaded term, which means that out of Jesus, out of Jesus came the words that transcended all of reality. What Jesus spoke was the final and transcendent authority. You see, Jesus did not cite other learned human beings to to help expound the Word of God because what does John 1 say? Because He is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. There is no higher authority. There is no word that can come out of anybody else's mouth that can go higher than what Jesus Himself has to say. And so when He is going through the Old Testament and preaching in this synagogue, what He says is final. What He says that those words meant is final. And so the Jews were watching Jesus teach Scripture as if He is God Himself. And that both struck them with wonder and it terrified them. And friends, there is a lesson there for us, right? That is how we should respond every time we read this book that has been gifted to us by God. With awe and fear, because if we do not heed the authoritative words of Jesus and organize ourselves under its authority, then we will find ourselves on the outside of the kingdom of God on that last day. And to read it flippantly, or to ignore it, is to ignore the very utterances of God Himself. And so this teaching that Jesus' word is authoritative is the first reason that Mark gives us as to why we should bend the knee to Jesus. But the next reason actually comes in this exact same scene. It comes in the exact same scenario of Jesus in the synagogue. You see, as Jesus is teaching, and as the other scribes and the other Jewish listeners are are trying to pick up their jaws off the floor, a man with an unclean spirit makes his way to the front of the crowd. Now there's been a a couple different interpretations as to what an unclean spirit means, but most most commentators and most Bible scholars, they, they kind of agree that this particular heckler was a man that has been possessed by a demon. And I'm not going to give a, an entire lecture on demonology, but I do, I do want to kind of give you a little bit of an explanation of what we can know about demons, because there is a, a lot of misconceptions out there. There's a lot of pop culture that would have you think one thing about demons when the Bible teaches something completely different. So I want to do a, just a quick rundown of what we can know about demons from Scripture. The first is that we can know from Revelations 12.4 that one-third of the angels fell from heaven when they followed Satan in rebellion against God. And it is these fallen angels that uh, the Bible is referring to when it uses the terms unclean spirit or demons. Secondly, 
As of right now, there are some demons that are free to roam around the earth and still do today. We see that here in our passage, as well as several other passages in Scripture, but we also know from 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 that there are some that are confined and chained up and that will never have freedom, and we, we don't fully understand why. We just, we just can't fully grasp the reason. Thirdly, demons are beings that have been given a certain amount of power this is, this is really important for us in, in the church, for the believers here today, because these demons seek to promote and propagate disunity, false doctrine and teaching, inflict disease, cause mental difficulties, and hinder Christian growth. Their desire, their purpose, their, their, their function is to destroy. That's what they want to do. And we also know that demons can oppress but not possess true believers. Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit as Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 and many other passages clearly state. And that means that we are, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and no unclean spirit can inhabit where God dwells. Though as we see from our passage today, demons can possess unbelievers. Lastly, and this is, this is the important one, if you, if you fell asleep through all of the other ones, Paul, uh, make sure that you pay attention to this last one. He fell asleep in a meeting one time, and I will never let him hear the end of it. So, But this is the one that you really want to write down and remember. Jesus has absolute, complete, and total authority over Satan and his demons. And that's final. Take a look at the passage in our, uh, in our verses today. It says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now there is a theme that sells a, a lot of movies and a lot of books. Movies and books that I love, by the way. It is the, it is the theme that Star Wars attempts to sell you. It is the theme that even Lord of the Rings tries to sell you. And that theme is that of cosmic dualism. Cosmic dualism. It teaches that there's this epic battle between the forces of good on one hand and the forces of evil on the other hand, and they are, they are equal. They're equal, and they're opposing each other, and they're, they're battling, and, and we don't really fully know who's going to win. It seems like they're, they're both evenly matched, and you don't know truly what's going to happen. And this cosmic dualism, it can even begin to leak its way into Christianity. Now don't get me wrong, there, there is a battle being waged between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And that spiritual warfare is well documented within the pages of the New Testament, and it is real. However, this battle is not dualism. It's not. It's not a fight between two equal opposing forces. 
You see, this demon who was in the synagogue, he knew his theology. He recognizes Jesus immediately for who he was, the Holy Son of God. And so he asked the question, have you come to destroy us? The demon knew that it had no chance, no chance against the power of God. In fact, if you look closely, his question, uh, if you look closely at his question, you see that he asked, have you come to destroy us? Not just me, us. Now some believe that this us is put here because there was, a, there was a multitude of demons within this one man in the synagogue. However, others have pointed out that Mark makes it clear with his singular use of unclean spirit that there was only one demon in this man. And so essentially what this demon is asking, have you come to destroy all of my kind? Have you come to throw us all into the pits of hell where we will suffer an eternal destruction? Again, this demon had good theology. This demon knew that no amount of backup, even from Satan himself, could withstand the power of the Son of God. And so Jesus, instead of of bantering back and forth with this demon or arguing with the demon, he, in in modern-day vernacular, essentially says, shut up. He says, shut up and get out of here. And unable to withstand the authority of Jesus, the demon flees. Not only does he flee, he actually trembles, he convulses, and then he flees. Now, as one commentator points out, as you actually peruse through the Old Testament, as you give a kind of a cursory glance, you don't see much in the way of demonic activity, especially when it comes to possession. Now, it's it's there to be sure, but it's it's extremely rare. You You don't see it very much. But it seems that once Jesus entered into the world, all hell broke loose. In situations like the one that we see here with this this demon-possessed man in the synagogue, it started to become pretty commonplace. And Jesus will later point to the significance of his work with demon exorcism by saying in Luke 11 that, that if you see me casting out demons by the finger of God, which is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so at the coming of Christ, Satan and the demons came in force to oppose the kingdom of God. But it's interesting. It's interesting to see that the demon asked this this other kind of peculiar, peculiar, I'm not going to say that word ever again, question. What have you to do with us? What have you to do with us? And so in one sense, the answer is nothing. There is no similarity between the, the purity of Jesus and the utter wickedness of demons. There is no commonality to be had between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. But, but in another sense, Jesus had everything to do with them because he had come to fulfill that what's called the proto-evangelium, that first pronouncement of the gospel given by God in Genesis 3 when he told Satan that one day, one day there will come one whose heel you will strike but by him your head will be crushed. You see, Jesus came not to just save sinners, though he did. He came not to just transfer us us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, though he did. 
But he came to completely wipe out Satan and his demons by throwing them into hell forever. See that in Revelation 20. Now don't believe, don't believe what pop culture would have you to believe about hell. It is not a place ruled by Satan. It's not. It is a place that Satan fears more than anything else, save God. It is a place of judgment and wrath into which he and his minions will be cast. Now, in three different interviews, Mao Zedong, who was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party and responsible for between 15 to 55 million deaths in China through his monstrous Great Leap Forward program, called America a paper tiger, which is an old Chinese idiom. Now, the idea here is that America was like a, a paper mache tiger that looked, that looked kind of scary on the outside and threatening, but in reality was, was nothing more than just paper draped over a hollow frame that was, that was really flimsy and, and weak. And though I don't like the one who made the saying popular, the metaphor of a paper tiger is actually is, is very applicable to Satan and his demons. While to us today who, who still struggle with, against spiritual and demonic forces, demons and Satan may seem terrifying. And while they still do have a certain amount of power and influence in this world, for those who are in Christ, Satan and his demons are nothing more than paper tigers. Why? Because, believer, the exact same power that was in Jesus, that he exercised complete authority over demons, is the exact same power that resides in you now. It was the Holy Spirit through Jesus that exercised the demon that was in the man in the synagogue, and that is the same Holy Spirit that is within you. And with the authority of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can declare victory. You can declare victory over the adversary and his demons, and you can cast them away. And Jesus didn't use any fancy incantations. He didn't use incense or rituals. He simply said, shut up and get out of here. And the demon could do nothing but scream and flee. And so, Christian, to you, demons are just kittens pretending to be lions. Colossians 2.15 says of Jesus' triumph and authority over demonic forces. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, meaning Satan and his demons, he, meaning Jesus, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so while Satan may have struck Jesus' heel by demonically influencing those who hung him on the cross, ultimately the cross was the death knell for Satan. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus secured our victory and secured Satan's defeat. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear from them. Nothing. We're entering into, into Halloween, right? When you see scary movies all over the place, demon movies all over the place, and I used to love them as a kid, now they just scare me too much. It's too real, too close to home. And they, they make demons out to be these things that, that are invincible, that you can't possibly stop. That's not what Scripture says. That's not what Scripture says at all. 
If you are in Christ, you stand victorious over each and every single spiritual entity that comes your way. Our souls are safe, Christian, in the hands of the Father. Paul says in Romans 8, 38-39, he says, he says, I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons nor any powers nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. The battle has been won. And the victor is Jesus Christ. And he alone has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we see that clearly here in Mark 1. But, Christian Christ has not yet come back. In the day of judgment when Satan and his demons will be thrown into hell has not yet come. And so we have work to do. We have work to do, Christian. Look at Acts 26, 17 through 18. I think we got a slide for that. It says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Christian, setting people free from the power of Satan is our calling. If you call yourself a Christian, that is what you are called to do. There's no exceptions. It may look different for each person, but your calling is that to set people free from the power of Satan by declaring the gospel, by sharing it boldly, by knowing you may lose friends and family members and, and all the rest, but out of love, sharing with them that there is deliverance from it. And that means people who are secular, People who, who don't even believe that there is such a power or even, even animistic people who build their lives around appeasing evil spirits. We're called to share the gospel with them all. And whether you are involved in encounters where demons are cast out of individuals in a, in a dramatic fashion or as John Piper says in a more typical but just as supernatural work of deliverance by spirit-empowered preaching and teaching and counseling the call is the same it's the same we are to have faith and confidence in god's promises and in the power of the holy spirit to do what we are utterly helpless to do in and of ourselves to go out into a hostile world to be the instruments that god uses to deliver people from the power of satan to see them go from being children of the father of lies to the children of the Heavenly Father. And Christian, we are to have faith and confidence that Jesus' will is final. And that Satan is subject to Jesus' overruling and guiding authority. Now as I close, I want to remind all of us, I want to remind all of us that there is coming a day where every knee will eventually bow, every knee will bow to the authority of King Jesus. And we're told that explicitly in Revelation 14 as we face his final judgment. But there will actually be two groups and two kinds of bowing on that last day. 
The first will be out of love and out of adoration for those who believe, knowing that we have been, we have been clothed in His righteousness and we've been forgiven of our sins. But the second kind of bowing will be done by those who have rejected the authority of Jesus. Setting themselves against Him and their bowing on that day will be out of terror and out of hatred because of the justice of God and how it will be poured out upon them. And like Satan and the demons, they too will be cast away. So I pray that you ask yourself, that you, that you truly ask yourself, when that last day comes, and when your knee touches that holy ground before God, will it be out of joy and love? Or will it be out of terror and hate? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to, Lord, I just want to say thank you, Lord. God, that even though, Lord, from the very beginning, you were king over all, and you are king over all, and even though we, we have rebelled against you, even though we, we spat in your face by trying to make ourselves king, by trying to make ourselves the true authority in this life, God, that you, you, you loved us enough to come down to this earth, Lord, this, this broken and dark world, to live that perfect life, to suffer mocking, to suffer torture, pain, to suffer everything that we could ever possibly experience in this life. And yet, God, you, you did it all through love and, and you did it so much so that, God, that you are willing to give yourself up on the cross, God, so that you could bear our sins. Take on the wrath of God. And so that for those who believe in you, Lord, we can spend eternity with you in a loving relationship. And so, God, we just thank you for that. Lord, thank you that the banner that you wave over those in your kingdom is the banner of love. And God, it is, it is your love for us that brought you down to shed your blood for us. So, God, I ask you to, to help us submit to your authority. And God, embolden us to preach the gospel and wage the spiritual war against the adversary to see those who are within the clutches of the enemy to be delivered and set free from their bondage to Satan and their sin. Father, I ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.